Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. on the book of Proverbs, and it really has been amazing. Honestly, I, it was my idea to do a series on Proverbs, and I was maybe the least excited about it. I was like, I don't know if people are going to get this. It's going to like, are people going to be excited about like wisdom from the Bible? And, and it has literally, it has uh, shifted a bunch of things in my life. It's been so helpful to me personally, especially the last month while I got to sit here and listen <clears throat> to other people preach, to Hayden, Lance, <laughs> Adam, Annie, Chase. It's just been so good. And I, and I have noticed that nobody's told me they missed my preaching, um, which I'm not going to take offense to that because those people have been so good, um, work my way out of a job. Uh, so, but <clears throat> in that, it is really like seen the areas in my life where I have gained wisdom and it's exposed areas of my life where I lack it. And God and his kindness does that over and over again in our lives. So, I'm excited to, uh, to finish up strong this, this week with what I think is a key challenge from the book of Proverbs and from this idea of wisdom and what it means for our lives and how it relates to our culture. And kind of rediscovered something this week as I, as I studied about this idea of wisdom as a missional strategy. Like what is the impact of wisdom not just in your life but in the lives of those who surround you, right? So, so Proverbs says this, blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better res, uh, returns than gold. She's more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. I love that. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, right? The interesting thing or the amazing thing is that wisdom blesses not only the bearer, but also the beholder. It's not just your blessing if you're wise. You become a blessing to all those you come in contact with. And this makes wisdom not just an internal or personal reality, but it makes it an external and a public reality. The life of the wise lived amongst people is a display of God's goodness and glory. When we live wisely amongst the world, we display the goodness and the glory of God. It's testimony in action. Or Peter would say it's a living stone set up in culture. And that's the life we're called to, right? Not just to speak wisdom, but to live it. And Peter touches on this. This is just such a great text. He says, but you, right, you guys, he's talking to you right now. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I love that phrase, live such good lives. Live such good lives. Live. <laughs> Goodness, live goodness, live it so well amongst the people that God's placed you amongst. And Jesus prays this prayer, right? He prays not that you would take them out of the world, right? But while being in the world, they would live for me. Jesus never promised an escape, right? He fills us with his spirit and he sets us in the arena. And he's like, all right, let's go together, right? He doesn't leave you alone. He says, I fill you with my spirit. I'm with you always, but I'm with you where? To the ends of the earth. Everywhere you go, I'm always with you. He places us in the culture, in a society, in a nation, in a time of history to display his goodness and glory. And, and as I studied this week, I really came across some really stunning examples of this um, across especially like early church history. So I know at least Chase is excited right now to hear about early church history. I love, any other church history nerds here, I love the early, like the first three centuries of the church are just fascinating. What happened after the apostles had passed the faith? They all are gone. How does the church grow and spread? And how do we end up in 300 years to where the church is basically taking over the Roman Empire. How did they do that? What does that look like? So here, here's what we know. So we're just going to dig into this, and then we're going to move to Jesus and the New Testament, and we're going to end with the Holy Spirit as we always do and what he wants to do in you. But in the first three centuries of the church, right, so they, Jesus passes the baton to the apostles. The apostles pass it to trustworthy men and women, and the gospel starts to spread amongst the earth. And we know that the church was growing, right? In the epistle to Diognetus in about the third, uh, I think it's about second century, he, he observes that Christians day by day increase more and more. Every day, new men, women, children, families are being added to their numbers. And Tertullian, who's one of the church fathers, he's probably exaggerating here, but he still says that Christians are a great multitude of men, almost the majority in every city. Right? And so what happens is, is, is they probably weren't the majority, but to them it felt like it. Because it was like, they're like, this thing is working. We're going from being a, a, a mustard seed to the tree that's like growing. 50 years later after that, uh, in Caesarea, in, in Palestine, Origen made this confident statement about the church's worldwide growth. He said, behold the Lord's greatness. Our Lord Jesus has spread out to the whole world because he is God's power. The power of the Lord and Savior is with those who are in Britain, separated from our world, and with those who are in Mauritania, and with everyone under the sun who has believed in his name. Behold the Savior's greatness. It extends to all the world. Isn't that beautiful that this church, this, this gospel, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus was spreading from Palestine to Britain? And I don't know if you guys realize, in the second or third century, that's a long journey. 
I mean, your, your brain couldn't even make sense of who those people are and what they're doing and what the land looks like. I mean, it's just this mystery. But people were going to all the world. And, and, and just for a second, can we not forget how surprising this, this was, right? No one was forced to join these churches. They weren't compelled by invading armies, right? They weren't conquered. Um, They didn't impose laws that required them to be Christians, nor was it like social convention. In, in, In fact, there was like really strong disincentives in society to become a Christian, Right? So you, you actually become a Christian. You are risking a lot. There was no um, cultural sway of being like, I believe in Jesus. He's the king. He rose from the dead. He's coming back. And people are like, man, that's not going to get you anywhere in culture. In fact, many of the baptismal records show that, that these candidates sense that every Christian by definition was a candidate for death. Right? So can you imagine signing up for something that you're like, you're playing the odds on martyrdom. You're like, okay, there's 10 of us in this room. <laughs> who's it, it going to be? It could be me. And so it's this amazing thing that it happened despite persecution, right? Family pressure, economic pressure, all this stuff. The church was growing. And what's even more fascinating to me is how the church grow, grew. How did the church grow? Why did it grow? And, and what's maybe inexplicable for us is that um, their strategy um, was so different than what we've grown in, right? The, the 20th century church, 21st century church, the expansion church of this church wasn't organized. It wasn't the product of a mission program. It just happened. Nobody was in charge of it, right? There was no grand leader of the whole thing that everybody looked to. It just kept happening over the world through people, it wasn't carefully thought through or easily produced on the organizational chart. They're like, here's your territory, and if you get three people, they'll get three people. And if you, I mean, it was just like, it was just people going to places, living for Jesus. There's no debates on missional strategies. I don't know if you guys know, this is inside church baseball. But if you go to a conference, there's like a church conference of pastors, you just spend hours debating on how we should strategize about winning the world. And it's amazing. These people were winning the world and had none of that. (laughs) They were just like, we don't know what we're doing. We're just like kind of out there for Jesus. And look what happened. But in the midst of that, what I love is early Christians, they wrote a lot. (laughs) So, So basically, almost all of the history we have from that world comes from Christians who are writing down what God was doing. And so it's interesting, and I promise you I'm getting somewhere. If you're like glazing over right now, I, I promise you we're going somewhere with this. But they wrote a lot. And it's interesting and instructive. What did they write about in the midst of all this? So they wrote tons of, of treaties, like, like these long form papers about all this stuff, but they didn't write a single one on evangelism, on outreach, on growth, like zero. Cyprian, uh, who was this this amazing guy in Carthage in North Africa. We actually have a record of his baptismal manual, what people would have to do, what they have to go through, what they'd have to memorize and know to get baptized. It has 120 precepts and not a single one on evangelism. Isn't that interesting? Because we're just like, well, how does a church grow without evangelism, right? How do we grow without a strategy? Sorry, my, I keep thinking like a spider is falling on my head. It's just the cord behind me. Just like, man, somebody's sneaking up on me back here. Just me. Anyways, okay. So, isn't that amazing? But out of those 120 precepts, not a single one encourages these new Christians to share the gospel with their neighbors. 
Can I just let that sink in? Not a single one says, oh yeah, God expects you to go door to door and proclaim, the, not a, isn't that crazy? And yet the church is flourishing, it's growing. They have so much fruit of new believers and yet nobody's telling them you should do this. They had this patient ferment. If I can get that, that slide is not working. We might need the, the computer back up and running. Um, but here's what Origen said in a Sunday sermon, right? He says, you catechumens, right? So this is a word for baptism candidates. He said, who gathered you into the church? What goad compelled you to leave your houses and come into our assembly? He said, we did not go to you from house to house. He's like, listen, we're not doing that. He says this, the almighty father put this zeal into your hearts by his invisible power. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? They just trusted if they did what God had asked them to do, that God would do the work, right? He says, God did this. God drew you. And so what they did is, is what one author called this patient ferment. It's just Christians living the way of Jesus over time in places in ways that fascinated and intrigued their neighbors, that would provoke questions about who they are, what they believe, why they live the way they live. Another interesting thing for us, right? So we've grown up in this world of evangelism strategy, right? And whether it's, you know, gospel tracts or whether it's the four spiritual laws. And, and again, these aren't, those aren't bad things, but I just want to point out what we've been kind of steeped in. The other discovery is interesting that they didn't uh, use their worship services to attract new people, in fact, if you track church history, for most of that early period, their worship services were closed to anyone who wasn't a baptized Christian. And a lot of that was fear of persecution, right? Because people could get in there, they'd tell the authorities, you've got a church in this building, and they'd scatter them, they'd persecute them, they'd martyr them. So part of it was, was this fear, but part of it also was they knew that the idea of who Jesus is and what he's done in us is foolishness to someone who's not a Christian, Right? They're just like, this, this, there's no way to make sense of who God is in Jesus, on the cross, in his resurrection, now ascended to heaven. There, there's no way to make that to, to, uh, to the Greeks in a way that they're like, oh, that sounds good. I'll take that. They knew there, there's a different way of reaching people. So in their view, worship services were to glorify God and edify the faithful, not to attract outsiders. Right? So they weren't like, hey, come, come to the show and see how cool this is. They were just like, hey, isn't that weird? They're like, you can't come, even if you want to. <laughs> and maybe that's like reverse psychology, early, early church. Like, no, nope, no, nope, it's too cool. You wouldn't get it. They were hipsters. Um, uh, are, is that still a thing, hipsters? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not in there anymore. Um, so... Again, I'm not saying like this is what we're going to do as a church and we should mimic their practice. What I wanted to do is challenge how we see this, right? How we see what is the role of the church? What is the role of a Christian in society? And for them, the patient work of God is happening at all times and God doesn't need influential or powerful people or great strategies, and this word ferment is really interesting because we know ferment is the, like this mysterious bubbling force that's happening invisibly, right? It's just happening. It's meant to happen. It's made to happen. It's these microorganisms that work collaboratively. 
I'm not speaking in tongues, I promise. Uh, Collaboratively, in ways that transcend human understanding. It's brewing, but it's not under anyone's control, right? It's this mysterious thing. It's uncoordinated, it's unpredictable, and most importantly, it's unstoppable. If you put these things together, this will happen. And I love that idea of the ferment of Christians in society, that when they do the things Jesus has called them to do, the growth of the church is actually unstoppable, And that's why the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? That's what they said. They said, the more of us you persecute and kill, the more members we add. And that makes zero sense in any earthly fashion. It doesn't make any sense other than the fact that God is doing something in the midst of those things. So, if neither evangelism strategy nor like ecstatic and open worship services or amazing sermons were the attractive factor for the early church, what was it that caused the church to grow. I love this quote from Cyprian. He says, beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by the truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. This line, we do not speak great things, but we live them. Whew. We do not speak great things. In fact, most Christians of those days operated by this principle. They called it disciplina arcani, which was the discipline of the secret, which was you could not speak of the mystery of Jesus to outsiders. You just lived the great truths of the inward testimony in public. You lived it through your actions more than your words. So here's what I think. I think one of the most destructive things for the church in the last generations is that we have many times spoken great things but not lived them. We speak these beautiful, mysterious truths into public and yet people look at our lives and they say, your your life doesn't seem mysterious (laughs) or intriguing, doesn't spark curiosity because you're mostly like me except you believe that you're going to heaven after you die. And it's not the most compelling thing. I think you could say that our evangelistic strategy has outstripped our wisdom. Or that our evangelistic and apologetical skill has outpaced our ability to live well. To live well. To live such good lives. That's how Christians should be known. They should be known. Christians live such good lives. If I could pick the life of any person, it would be my Christian neighbor. The relationship with their spouse, the relationship with their children, the way they love me, the way they serve, the way they give, the way they forgive, the way they reconcile, the way they pray for me when I have need. Live such good lives. Cyprian says that Christians should be more visibly distinctive than audibly distinctive. (laughs) And I think we've reversed those. I think we're really audibly distinctive. We're out there with the megaphone yelling the truth and yet many times our lives maybe don't match. And so I think non-believers or as this time they would say pagans would look and say, hey, if your life is as anxious, disturbed, bitter, resentful, distracted, greedy as I am, what, what good is this life of Jesus? Right? What good is it? 
I don't know if this one is on there. Yeah, Origen says again, another church father. Christ's followers are not in a hurry. <laughs> He's like, there's just right, in the, right off the bat, here's a huge difference between Christians and non-Christians. Christians are not in a hurry. They're not in a hurry. They listen carefully when the word is read and preached. And they patiently call to account straying Christians who attend worship services irregularly. Patient believers trust God when they are subjected to penitential discipline. They patiently bear the judgment made about them whether they have been rightly or wrongly deposed. Like there's a way of being that is so different than any other people. And it's fascinating. You may have experienced this, especially if you're new at our church, that that. Uh, we've tried to take this principle really clearly as a church in that we are not in a hurry as a church. Like, we're not in a hurry to plug you in. We're not in a hurry to make you a leader. We're not in a hurry to, to get you all fixed up and make sure you look good and, and do all the right things. We're just not. And that can be weird, right? Because if you come from, from a church background, like, uh, and I'll say it this way, sometimes you feel like a widget that gets put on a conveyor belt, right? And you go through this thing and you end up in a place that you didn't really even intend and like nine months later, you're like, I'm a leader at this church. I barely even know anybody, right? What? <laughs> and you feel burdened and then you get burned out and then you, you have conflict. And, and so we just try to be really slow. Like our goal is if you come to church here, you just soak in this culture for a pretty good amount of time and let the Lord do the work that he does in your life. And after the given time, he'll have so much for you to do and so many good things, and I won't be near any of it. It'll be him. It'll just be him. Not like, oh, the pastor asked me to lead a small group, so I got to do it. No, you don't. (laughs) Not if it's not God asking you to do it. So we just try to be patient, not be in a hurry. The early Christians, they communicated this gospel of, of the kingdom of Jesus bodily. So what's interesting is rarely were they given a chance to make a public defense to the gospel of Jesus. Most of the times they were offered to make a defense of being a Christian. It was in the arena right before their martyrdom and you know most of them stood there silently. They had a chance to preach the gospel to great crowds and they just stood there and said, nope. But what we'll do is we'll die in this arena in a way that nobody else will watch us. Watch how we die. Woo! <laughs> Like, even in our death, we will demonstrate the patience and the trust and the love and the mercy and the hope of Jesus Christ because we're not scared. And they tell stories of Christians gathering together in the center to pray and to pass the kiss of peace before they met Jesus for the final time. While everybody else in the arena was running around, no one was helping each other, they were screaming out and Christians would stand there in the center and just allow it. Isn't that amazing? Their, their actions demonstrated a different reality. And again, this flies in the face of so much of what we've been trained to do. We've been trained to verbally defend our faith. That's what apologetics is a defense, right? And we've been trained um, to verbally defend our faith, to think the right way, and to communicate the plausibility, right? That Christianity makes sense. And the Bible makes sense. But can I just say this? Can you sit with this question for a second? What if people simply don't care if Jesus or the Bible makes sense? (laughs) Where are we at then? What if they're like, ah, that's really plausible. There could be a God and he could have a son named Jesus and there might be a heaven and the church could be a good thing. And they're just like, who cares? You're literally just stuck on uh, I, I don't know where to go. All that money my parents spent. 
<laughs> did nothing. Send me those camps and learning those things and all that stuff. And it's not that they're not valuable. It's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying, I think today where we're at is Christianity making sense isn't the first impulse of a non-Christian. I think there's a shift where the first question people ask today is, is being a Christian desirable? Is it good? Does it actually work in the real things of life? Because if it doesn't work in that way, I don't care how much sense it makes, how coherent the Bible is, or how good heaven might be someday after I die. I think they might ask questions like, can Jesus and his way relieve me of my shame? I feel shame in my heart for things I've done, things I've said, what's happened to me. Can he work in that place in my life? Because I haven't found anything else that works. And I've searched the world and I haven't found anything. Can he meet me there? Can he soothe the pain of my soul? The loss, the grief, the trauma. The the Bible, the writer goes, is there a balm in Gilead? (laughs) Is there anybody who can meet me and soothe the reality of my existence that just feels like suffering. <laughs> hmm. Does he give me a reason to get up in the morning and live? Not just survive, but live with passion and joy. Can he deliver that joy to me that has escaped me in every other pursuit? I've tried money, I've tried pleasure, I've tried work, all these things, and yet emptiness. And ultimately, the question is, does the Christian in my life know these things to be true in their life? (laughs) Do I see it written on their face, in their body, in their life, in their family, in their business that they own and run are completely in charge? And do I see the answer to these things in those things? Live such good lives. And the problem is we've been trained in like intellectual jujitsu But it turns out choking somebody out with the truth doesn't change their hearts. We're like, take it, it's true. And they're like, I don't (laughs) I don't care if it's true. I don't care if it's true. Justin said this. I love it. Justin the apologist, (laughs) the martyr, this amazing guy says, It is for us, therefore, to offer to all the opportunity of inspecting our life and teachings. He says, we live such good lives among the pagans. We're an open book. Come and see. Come and see how we use our money, how we use our time, how we use our bodies, how we treat our neighbors, how we love our spouse. Come and inspect our lives. Origin. Again, Christ makes his defense in the lives of his genuine disciples. For their lives cry out the real facts. I love that. Their life, over time, the story of their life cries out the truth of who Jesus is. And what's interesting is I've I've done this experience all over the place. Say, when you move somewhere or go somewhere and you meet the nicest, most kind, most generous, most loving, you know, just name the list. This kind of person, what do you think they are? And Mormon. Every time, I mean, it's literally, it's almost 100%. When you meet somebody, you're like, man, that person's kind. Man, they're loving. Man, they're generous. Man, they've got all these kids, and they just seem like they're loving lives, just all these things. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, they're Mormon. God bless the Mormons. They're just killing, they're killing us, guys. Why is it never they're like a Protestant evangelical Christian? 
just for sure, I know it. They go to a non-denominational church. I bet it's true. It's like, no, it's like they're Mormon. And you find out, you're like, they're Mormon. Annie and I are like, a, you know, we had a nurse and we're like, man, she just seems like, like, she's Mormon. Yep. And it's just, isn't it amazing? But you know what Mormons do? They take their teenagers and they send them to seminary every day before high school, 6 a.m. You go to school before school. And then when you graduate high school, you know what you do? You go on mission. I mean, they, they just work this life because this thing isn't just about what you believe. And what's funny is, is, is many times evangelical Christians hammer Mormons about what they believe, and yet Mormons are living better lives. <sighs> we got to wake up. We got to live such good lives that people would be like, man, I met this guy in Oklahoma City. I bet he goes to that church skyline, that really weird church. I don't know. Hear weird stuff about them. They raise their hands and I don't know. Strange. But man, do their people live good lives. That's who you want as your neighbor, right? That's who you want your son to turn out to be. That's what you want your daughter to be like. Hmm. And I love that. Live such lives where? Amongst the pagans. It's easy to live this life on Sundays <laughs> with these people. You're like, you should live well here. It's pretty easy. But in your business, in the marketplace, in the school, wherever you're at, living such a good life amongst the pagans, in the midst of this whole thing, Christians were invested both in the life of the Christian community, so they didn't ignore the church and they didn't ignore the world. They didn't get into a false choice. They're like, no, no, it's, it's both and. We're going to love both. And I love Tertullian. He heard this about the Christians of his day. They're like, oh, well, Christians are bad at business, you know, because they're just so spiritual. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not taking that. He's like, Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, and customs. Nor do they inhabit cities of their own, use a strange dialect, or live life out of the ordinary um, they, they inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities according to the lot assigned to each. They show forth the character of their own citizenship in heaven in a marvelous and admittedly paradoxical way by following local customs and what they wear and what they eat and the rest of their lives. Right? So Christians blend into a society. We don't stand out in big ways. Actually, it's like small faithfulness over time. They live in their respective countries, but only as resident aliens. They participate in all things as citizens. They endure all things as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they don't expose them once they're born. That was like a form of, of Roman. If you had a baby you didn't want, you just leave them on the side of the road. And Christians were notorious for picking up babies on the side of the road and taking them home and caring for them as their own. They share their meals, but not their sexual partners. They're obedient to the laws that have been made, and by their own lives, they supersede the laws. They're like, oh yeah, that's the law, fine, but we go so far past that, we don't even have to worry about breaking the law. They're impoverished and make many rich. To put the matter simply, what the soul is to the body, this is what Christians are to the world. Isn't that beautiful? What the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. So if you find a sick society at the source, you find a sick church. Where you find a healthy church, you find a transforming society. Not in big ways, not through public policy, not through power, but through small faithfulness over time, winning hearts one by one. So the soul, right? So that means Christians are the animating life force of Jesus on the earth. We're the soul of the culture. Through worship, through our practices, 
And so you think about it, so much has been made about how, how much negativity has come through the church, and we all know, we know about stories about the Crusades, we know all the stuff the church has done across history that's been bad, that hasn't reflected Jesus, but let me ask you this, what would happen to, church, to uh, human history if you wiped the church out? The last 2,000 years, if you just take the church out of it, what does the world look like? It is a much, much darker place. So much beauty, so much architecture, so much art, so much helping, so much service, so much generosity, so much good would be wiped off the planet if it were not for the church and its members. So let's go back. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I was going to read all these scriptures, but I, I'm just going to encourage you. Would you just take time today? Go read 1 Peter 2 through 4. It's all just about how you should live in this really difficult, worldly environment. And it's one of the most beautiful pleas to live for Jesus. Live well amidst difficulty. So here's the good news. The good news is you might think that sounds really overwhelming, right? Really overwhelming, but it's not because Jesus promises his yoke is easy and his burden's light and Jesus doesn't tell lies. <laughs> so if he's telling the truth and we, if we're experiencing Jesus in his way in a way that's burdensome and heavy, it means we're doing it wrong. So it means we got to just stop and say, what is it about this thing that feels heavy? Because if it's heavy, it's not from him, right? It feels, it feels like a burden like, and I, and I mean, there's not, I mean like a false burden, one that makes you sad and one that makes you angry and one that makes you resentful. Not like I'm carrying a burden he asked me to and man, I'm gonna go the extra mile. That's a good thing. You'll feel life in that actually. But Jesus says his yoke is easy, his burden is light. So what does this look like? Um, how can this be true? And I, I just wanna say, this is only true that you can live this way. You can live a good life among the pagans, right? You can love and bless and give and serve freely if the Holy Spirit lives in you. That's it. It's your, it's your only shot. Jesus, he, he, he prayed this prayer. He said, I'm gonna send you the counselor. He's going to live in you and he's going to guide you into all truth. And so in the church, Jesus offers us this really beautiful thing, which one church uh, we've been to that we've connected with, they call it the, uh, the in and out lifestyle. I love this. They say, you come in to worship Jesus, to get built up, to get poured into, to get healed, to get reconciled, to get restored, and then he sends you out. And that's just the rhythm of the church and it's not complicated. And Christians have been doing it for thousands of years. We gather, we worship, we pray, we read the word, we encourage each other, we admonish each other, we rebuke each other if needed, we hold each other accountable, we forgive, we get forgiven, and then we go out into the world feeling so loved, blessed, stirred, <laughs> emboldened by Jesus that we can live well. So you have this thing of embodied worship. You come in and we worship. And something happens to you when you worship. I can't describe it. It's part of the mystery that stuff just starts to go away. When you just get locked in on Jesus, you love him. The Holy Spirit starts to speak to you. The gifts start to stir up in the church and you get encouraged and you see miracles, you see healings. Uh, we've counted seven healings in Skyline, physical healings in the last month and a half. And there's nothing special about us other than we've started praying for healing. We've just started asking God, would you heal? And guess what? God still heals people. It's pretty cool. And then we go out in practice 
And so I look at it at the end like this. You have the Holy Spirit and you have power and you have love and then he sends you out with love and wisdom and truth, right? Just love and wisdom and truth. But we don't beat people over the head with truth. We live it. So Peter says this, be prepared to give an answer. The only way you have to be prepared to give an answer is if you live in such a way that people will ask. So the question about my life is what questions is my life provoking in others? Right? The way I live, the way I treat people, the way I lead my family, the way I serve my community, what questions does it provoke in other people? Hopefully it provokes them. It's like, who is this Jesus guy? Man, if it produces that kind of life, if he produces that kind of life, I kind of would like to hear more about him. What is this church thing I see you going to and you just come back like your face is shining? What's that all about? Proverbs, back to Proverbs. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding, esteem her and she will exalt you, embrace her, and she'll honor you. She'll set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. So the Bible says, friends, get wisdom. In a day where wisdom is hard to find at all cost, get wisdom. How do we get wisdom? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. I want the worship team to come back up. So it says, get wisdom at all costs. So here, here's what I've found in the last three or four years as God has taken our church on this journey of coming to know the Holy Spirit as a real person of the Trinity, right? Not a human being, a real person, right? The, has a personality. I mean, it's just like, what have I learned? I've learned that without cultivating intimacy with the Holy Spirit as Jesus intended, you will never be wise in the way that Jesus intended, Can I just say that again? Without cultivating intimacy with the Holy Spirit in the way Jesus intended, you'll never be wise in the way he intended. You can be wise in all sorts of other ways, but you won't be wise in the way that he offered, which is to have a wisdom that outstrips all the worldly stuff. So Paul says, we showed up preaching the cross, Jesus crucified and demonstrated the power of the Spirit's foolishness to the world, but to those of us who are being saved, it's what? It's the power of God, right? I love that. So the answer to getting wisdom is being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want you to stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. I want to call our prayer team up. Um, so a, a couple of prayer points that we can close with. One is if you've been seeking wisdom, can I just encourage you to, to ask Jesus to fill you with his spirit? The, the New Testament says to, to be baptized which is just to have an encounter, to experience him. And this morning, if you've been seeking wisdom in any way, in your family, in your marriage, in your business, whatever it is, I just encourage you to come pray and let somebody pray that the Holy Spirit would fill you, right? The other thing is I just had a heart this week for, for those of us who have grown up in churches who have, who have told us, like, again, if it, you have to learn all this stuff and you have to be able to wield the truth in a way that, that somehow produces life in other people's lives. And you might feel beat up by it. You might feel like a failure because of it. I'd invite you just to, like, do some prayer time. Minister, allow God to minister to your heart this morning how easy and light his yoke and burden are.
And his invitation this morning is not to go work for him or produce for him or be some heroic missionary. His invitation is to know him. And if you come to know him, you get wisdom. You just get it slowly over time. And I, I'm, like, I'm 43 now. I've been walking with Jesus almost 25 years. And I'm just now like, I feel like I'm getting wisdom. <laughs> it's slow. It's slow. But it's so good when you're not in a hurry. So I can just say, like, God's not in a, I, I just want you to hear this. God is not in a hurry with you. He's not in a hurry with you. He's not disappointed with where you're at on your journey. He's not like, I thought you'd be further by now. He knew you'd be here right now in the things you're in right now. And he's just like, good, you're here with me now. Let's take the next step. He's merciful. He's kind. He's patient. Amen. So I'm going to pray for us. And I just want to encourage you, if you need prayer for anything, I said physical healing, spiritual healing, you have an unsaved neighbor you've been praying for. Uh, we have people who they have been trained to pray. And we know God hears us when we pray. So let's, Jesus, we just invite you right now to come. We just want to worship you in this moment. We want to lift you high because we know that wherever your name is lifted up, you draw people to you. So we're just going to spend the last portion of time here just worshiping you, lifting up your name. Lord, I pray that you would grant this church intimacy with your Holy Spirit so that we would live such good lives in the world would spark a fascination and a curiosity, Jesus, with who you are, because we know you're good. And we know that those who seek you find, those who knock, the door gets opened, those who ask, receive. And so come right now, Holy Spirit, search our hearts. Would you start to mend any, any spots that 